Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. Episode 77, The Indo-Greeks, Invasion of the Yavana Rajas. Despite the collapse of the Greco-Bactrian kingdom in the mid to late 2nd century BC, their successors, and in some cases rivals, continued to prosper in India. The Indo-Greeks, a term coined by the scholar Awad Kishore Narayan in his landmark book of the same name, refers to the political successors of the Greeks of Bactria that established themselves in an area approximating to southeastern Afghanistan, Pakistan, and northwestern India. These kingdoms, for there was not just one, lasted from roughly 185 BC until the early 1st century AD, decades after the traditional ending date of the Hellenistic period with Cleopatra's death. Much to our misfortune, we are left with even less information and sources on the Greek rulers of India than those of Bactria. Conversely, we gain access to a collection of various Indian authors and inscriptions which, when used with caution, provide us with a more complicated view on the nature of Hellenism. Prior to the 4th century BC, the Greeks understood very little about India, a place which was perceived to be at the ends of the earth. Tales from early authors like Herodotus, Theseus, or Hecateus suggest a land of riches or a sort of primitivist utopia, along with a collection of outlandish creatures like people with dogs' heads or gold-digging ants. Relying on these accounts to get an accurate picture of India during this period may be about as useful as relying on mythological stories of Heracles or Dionysus, who were said to have visited India in the ancient past, but they no doubt formed the basis of what later travelers envisioned as what lay beyond the mountain range of the Hindu Kush. Most of this early information would be received by the Greeks from second- and third-hand sources from the Persian Empire which absorbed Gandhara and turned into a satrapy by the time of Darius I. According to Greek tradition, Darius commissioned an Ionian sailor named Skylex of Karyanda to sail down the Indus River in approximately 515, who later published a report on his findings, making him the earliest recorded Greek to have visited the Indus. Most authors seem to agree that India was prosperous, containing a wide array of goods and an enormous population. To visit it, never mind attempting to undertake a military expedition there, would place any would-be adventurers or warlords into the realm of the divine. In the spring of 327, Alexander the Great and his army departed from Bactria, southward across the Hindu Kush, marking the beginning of six centuries of close contact between the Mediterranean and South Asia. This was not a mission of goodwill and peace, but one of conquest, as Alexander was compelled to expand his empire ever farther. While the Greeks were impressed by cities like Takshila, this did not deter them from plundering the countryside and sacking several towns. Much like the campaign in Bactria, the invasion of India was marked by many brutal acts, as the unfamiliar climate and fierce resistance from the natives, who were many in number and prone to using war elephants, took a toll on the Macedonian soldiers as they marched throughout the Punjab. After triumphing in a hard-fought battle against King Porus at the Hydaspes in 326, Alexander's troops had grown tired and refused to march past the Hyphasis River, the modern Chenab, though the news of even greater Indian kingdoms that lay beyond the Punjab, namely the Nanda Empire, had excited the king with the prospect of further conquests, this was the final straw for his men. After a few days of sulking, the king eventually acquiesced to the demands of the army, and proclaimed an end to their journey. At the banks of the Hyphasis, Alexander is said to have ordered the construction of larger-than-life altars and statues of the Olympian pantheon to commemorate his journey, and mark the furthest limits of Greek civilization. From there, he proceeded to lead his army down the Indus and return home along the coast of the Indian Ocean and the Persian Gulf. The participants of these Indian campaigns ended up authoring their own accounts of India, King Ptolemy Soter of Egypt, Nearchus the Admiral, and Aristobulus the court historian, to name a few. Their observations would heavily supplement the writings of later Greek and Roman authors like Strabo, Arian, and Pliny the Elder. Like in Bactria, 
Alexander sought fit to appoint a mixture of Macedonians and local Indian leaders as heads of these new satrapies. King Takshilis was to govern the region of Gandhara from his capital of Takshila, while the other kings Porus and Sophites would manage the rest of the Punjab. The Greek commanders, such as the Macedonian general Python in the southern portions along the Indus and Philip to the north, were left behind as well to ensure their good behavior. Ironically, the Greeks themselves would prove to be the biggest troublemakers. Philip was murdered in 325 by the Greek colonists that were settled in the region, and Porus was assassinated by Philip's successor Eudamus ten years later. Both Python and Eudamus would eventually be drawn into the wars of the successors and killed, and the satrapies were left largely to their own devices. One of the few references to the Indian provinces during this period was the forced relocation of the elite Macedonian Silver Shields unit to Aracosia, a punishment for their betrayal of Eumenes of Cardia. Outside of this event, numismatic evidence shows that Sophites was able to strike Hellenic-style coins in his own name, a reflection of his increased independence or willingness to employ Greek mercenaries. Without any direct supervision, it seemed that the Indian provinces would break away in time. Shortly after the departure of Alexander from India, an important figure arises in both the Greek and Indian historical record. Chandragupta Maurya, also known to the Greeks as Sandrakotis, was a man of unknown origins who led an uprising against the ruling Nandas and conquered much of the Magadha region, establishing the Mauryan Empire. Greco-Roman authors believed him to have been of a humble background, while Indian accounts are sharply divided in opinion and heavily mythologized. The timing of Alexander's invasion of India and the rise of Chandragupta was not lost upon the Greeks either, nor to recent scholars as well. Authors like Justin and Plutarch envision a meeting of some kind between Alexander and Chandragupta, the former acting as the inspiration for the latter's imperial ambitions. Though, whether the future Indian emperor ever laid eyes on the Macedonian king is uncertain. Having consolidated the former Nanda Empire, Chandragupta likely took advantage of the instability of Alexander's former satrapies and reclaimed much of their territory, restoring the borders to as they were under Persian rule. This westward expansion would not go uncontested. In roughly 305, Seleucus I Nicator was in the middle of his eastern Anabasis intent on restoring Macedonian authority to the upper satrapies, including the Indian provinces. A war was fought between Seleucus and Chandragupta, with the former leading his army across the Indus River to confront the Indian emperor. Little is known about this conflict, but the sources agree that by 303, a treaty was signed between both rulers which contained three clauses, the first being a marriage alliance, the second was the transfer of the most distant satrapies like Aracosi and Gandhara to Chandragupta, and the third was the delivery of 500 battle-ready Indian elephants to Seleucus. While the elephants seem like a paltry exchange for such huge tracts of land, a hint of how the war may have not gone in his favor, these fearsome beasts would nevertheless play a decisive role at the Battle of Ipsus in 301, when Seleucus and a coalition army defeated the forces of Antigonus the One-Eyed and Demetrius Polyarchites. Seleucus's inability to conquer Chandragupta's armies was a subject of ridicule by his enemies, as Demetrius's followers mockingly referred to him as the Master of Elephants. Ribbing aside, the performance of the elephants at Ipsus would ensure that they would continue to play a major role in Hellenistic warfare, and many Indian elephant riders, Mahouts, would travel to the Mediterranean to serve as mercenaries in the armies of the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. Following the Treaty of the Indus, the Maurya turned their attention to the rest of South Asia, of which large portions remained independent. Both the second emperor, Bindusara, and his more famous successor, Ashoka, would greatly enlarge their empire through a series of conquests, including a particularly bloody war waged by Ashoka against the Kalingas. By 261, the Maurya were in control of the largest empire to ever emerge out of the Indian subcontinent, stretching to the Bay of Bengal in the east, Afghanistan in the west, and as far south as the state of Tamil Nadu. Rather than continuing to seek a policy of expansion, Ashoka is said to have undergone a religious epiphany following the devastation wrought by the Kalinga War, and converted to Buddhism, 
dotting the Indian landscape with rock and pillar inscriptions espousing his religious idealism. Despite their rocky introduction, the relationship between the Hellenistic kingdoms and their Indian neighbors remained amicable throughout the 3rd century. Around 300, Seleucus sent an ambassador named Megasthenes to the court of Chandragupta, in the city known as Palambothra to the Greeks and Pataliputra to the Indians, which approximate to the modern site of Patna along the Ganges River. Megasthenes wrote an eyewitness account called the Indica, which unfortunately has not survived outside of fragments and paraphrasing by later authors, but it contains discussions about a wide array of subjects, ranging from elephant hunting to the administration and layout of the empire. Though his interpretations of what he saw are sometimes a little suspect, cross-examinations with native sources like the Arthashastra and archaeology have demonstrated that Megasthenes was rather astute in his observations. His main goal for writing the Indica is also unclear. Perhaps he intended to provide an assessment of the Mauryan Empire's military capabilities for the Seleucid government, should they consider another invasion, or perhaps to reflect the Seleucid imperial worldview and justify Seleucus's withdrawal from India. Regardless, the Indica remained the most accurate and reliable European account of India until the medieval period. Other Greek envoys also made their way to Pataliputra, namely the Seleucid official Dimachus of Plataea and the Ptolemaic diplomat Dionysius during the reign of Chandragupta's son Bindusara. Our classical sources have also recorded a few instances of gift exchange between the great powers of the Mediterranean and South Asia. Seleucus was presented with some of India's flora and fauna by Chandragupta, namely aphrodisiacs and anaphrodisiacs, along with a tiger which was regifted to Athens. Bindusara requested a collection of Mediterranean goods from Antiochus I Soter, including figs, wine, and a philosopher, though the last request was supposedly not honored on the grounds of morality. Emperor Ashoka's understanding of the political situation in the Mediterranean is made apparent on one of his rock edicts, as he provides a list of all the various kings he dispatched emissaries to, Antioga, Antiochus I or II of the Seleucid Empire, Tulemaya, Ptolemy II Philadelphus of Egypt, Antikina, Antigonus II Gennatus of Macedonia, Maka, Magus of Kyrene, and Aliakshudala, Alexander II of Epirus. Following the death of Ashoka in the late 230s, the Mauryan dynasty underwent a decline in power. Signs of this were already apparent when the Seleucid king Antiochus III journeyed into India during his own eastern Anabasis in 206. Rather than dealing with any of the Maurya directly, Antiochus appears to have established or renewed an alliance with an Indian king named Safagasinus, perhaps Subhagasina, just south of the Hindu Kush. This man was either an independent lord or some sort of vassal king of the Maurya, but he provided Antiochus with many elephants and treasure as a symbol of his friendship. In roughly 185, the last Mauryan emperor, Brihadratha, was unceremoniously assassinated by his commander, Pushyamitra Shunga, the founder of the Shunga dynasty. With the death of the last Mauryan ruler, India divided into several kingdoms of varying size and importance in absence of a strong imperial authority. The Shunga retained the imperial heartland around the Ganges and large portions of the Bay of Bengal, the Satavahana dynasty continued to expand throughout the Deccan Plateau in central India, and the Tamil kingdoms of the Cholas and Pandyas flourished in the south. Fragmentation of the Mauryan realm is important to understanding the invasions of the Greco-Bactrian kings. Northwest India was a turbulent region, even under Mauryan rule. In his early career, Ashoka was sent to the provincial capital of Takshila to quell a rebellion that broke out there, and given the dealings with Safagasinus, it stands to reason that these were the first areas to slip from imperial control. The Greeks in Bactria were no doubt well informed about the events taking place, especially for its rulers at the beginning of the 2nd century, the aged Euthydemus I and his son Demetrius I. 
Their agreement with Antiochus III meant that a western expansion into Seleucid territory was out of the question, but India was wealthy and politically divided, ripe for the picking for any prospective conqueror. Tales of Alexander and Seleucus's wars against Porus and Chenragupta must have filtered down to Demetrius, and it is likely that they were aware of the murder of Brihadratha. By the year 185, Demetrius led an army south across the Hindu Kush and into Arachosia, reinstating Greek rule over a century after he had been delivered by Seleucus to Chandragupta. This event can be dated with some confidence, thanks to the calendrical system used by the Indo-Greek kings. Inspired by the Seleucid model, the Greeks in India had their own epoch by which to measure the passage of time. While year zero in the Seleucid era dates to 312-311 BC, the Indo-Greek era starts in approximately 186-185. This would line up nicely with the Indian campaigns, and it is presumed that either Demetrius or his successor instituted this new system. The Kuliab inscription of Heliodotus, dating to about the same period, suggests that the campaigns had started when Euthydemus was still alive, a necessary arrangement if Demetrius needed to secure his holdings in Bactria as he marched out with his army. To celebrate his successes, Demetrius issued coins bearing his portrait, with an elephant scalp adorning his head, a symbol of his eastern victories and an image often associated with Alexander as well. Demetrius may have also had the distinction of being the only Greco-Bactrian ruler to have a surviving bust in his image, based on a faience sculpture discovered in Ai-Kanum. Archaeological evidence of the Indian conquest may also be found in Ai-Kanum's treasury. In addition to finished goods like ivory carvings, there are also coins of various types from India. An inventory documents written in the mid-2nd century give sums based on Karshapana currency from Takshila, alongside the standard Greek drachma. Copronickel coins minted by the rulers immediately following Demetrius were probably the result of ingots being taken as loot or tribute, rather than gaining the knowledge on how to make the alloy themselves. The Chinese possessed the ability to forge copper-nickel, though, and it is possible that these ingots made their way from China to India before being taken by the Bactrians during a raid. Demetrius is certainly the best documented ruler in both the Greco-Bactrian and the Indo-Greek kingdoms, and his epithets and coin imagery are centered around his military achievements. The Kulyab inscription calls him Kalinicus, Glorious Victor. Strabo also attributes the expansion of the Bactrians into India, at least in part to Demetrius, and Isidore of Carax reports the existence of a city in Arachosia named Demetrius, which presumably was founded by Demetrius either during or immediately after the invasion of the region. W. W. Tarn believed that Demetrius should be considered the premier conqueror of the Indo-Greeks, while Narayan argued that later kings, notably Menander I, should receive the credit. In either case, after Demetrius' invasion into Parapamisidae and Arachosia, there would be at least two sets of kings ruling at any time, those based in Bactria and those in India. Following his death in the early 180s, Demetrius' Indian domains were likely overseen by the figures Agathocles and Pantaleon, who either ruled contemporaneously or in short succession, since they both minted cupro-nickel coins, along with Euthydemus II in Bactria. Agathocles holds a particularly unique position in the numismatic record. He was the first known Greek king to issue coins with bilingual legends, one written in Greek and one written with the Karash the alphabet. He was also the first to follow Indian customs by striking square-shaped coins, rather than the traditional round or circular type. This suggests that he may have overseen the transition of Greek power into the Punjab, perhaps capturing the city of Takshila in the process. The circumstances surrounding his background are rather unique, since he minted a series of commemorative or pedigree coins based on the past rulers of Bactria, Alexander the Great, Euthydemus I, Demetrius I, and the curious figure Antiochus Nicator, who was either Antiochus I of the Seleucid Empire or a third Diodotic king. We can assume that Agathocles was a son of Demetrius I, given the frequency of Euthydemids in the series and the coins may have been intended to celebrate the conquests in India. Takshila was also the first major Indian city to submit to Alexander, 
so evoking the long-dead Macedonian king's image was an appropriate act. As the Euthydemid rulers settled into their new holdings, events transpiring in Central Asia would result in serious repercussions for the Indo-Greeks. Around 170, the famous Eucratides overthrew the Euthydemid line in Bactria and proclaimed himself king. His ambition eventually led him to campaign in Eracosia, resulting in a clash with an Indo-Greek monarch named Demetrius, likely Demetrius II Aniketos. According to Justin, Demetrius put up a spirited defense against the attacks of Eucratides, even driving the Bactrian ruler into a local city and placing him under siege for five months. But Eucratides managed to escape the blockade and establish himself as the master of Eracosia, presumably with Demetrius being killed or driven into exile. Such a victory would not last for long, however, as Eucratides would be murdered by his son during the return to Bactria shortly before 145. The Greco-Bactrian kingdom, taxed by the wars of Eucratides, would soon crumble and fall apart over the next decade as they faced invasions, civil wars, and successive waves of migrating tribes from the Eurasian steppe, like the Saka and Uesche. With Bactria falling apart, the Indo-Greeks needed to reconsolidate after the turmoil inflicted by Eucratides' invasion. The man most responsible for the kingdom's restoration was Menander I Soter, whose reputation would surpass all other Greek rulers of Bactria and India alike. According to the Melinda Panya, a Pali Buddhist text featuring Menander as the titular character, he was said to have been born in a village called Kalasi. If we are to believe this story, this would imply that Menander was of humble origins, since royalty tends not to be born in a hamlet, but it is more likely that he was part of the Euthydemid family. One of the most striking images on Indo-Greek coins is the presentation of the goddess Athena Alcademos, holding the Aegis and wielding a thunderbolt, and she was Menander's deity of choice. While the Euthydemids are traditionally associated with Heracles, Athena was also present on the coinage of Demetrius II, and Menander made sure to include the club-wielding demigod on some of his strikes as well. Menander probably took the throne around 155, making him a contemporary of Eucratides, but whether he clashed with the Bactrian king after Demetrius II's death is unclear. The assassination of Eucratides must have taken enough pressure off the young monarch, allowing him to restore order to his kingdom. Using Gandhara as a staging area, Menander and the other Indo-Greek kings were able to lead a series of invasions that penetrated deep into the heart of India. Classical authors like Strabo say that the Indo-Greeks pushed farther than the Macedonian conquests of the 4th century, and that Menander personally surpassed Alexander in the number of peoples he defeated. The anonymous writer of the Periplus of the Erythrian Sea claims that there was visible evidence of Alexander's campaigns, fortifications, siege works, and even religious shrines in the region of Barigaza, modern Baruch in Gujarat, during the 1st century AD. If they are indeed Hellenic in origin, then they would have to be attributed to the Indo-Greeks, since Alexander never got past the Punjab. Our same author also speaks of the coins of Indo-Greek rulers like Menander being circulated in Barigaza's markets, so this may indicate that they managed to get as far south as the Bay of Kambat. But most dramatic is the evidence from classical and Indian sources describing their easternmost campaigns, which suggests that the armies of the Indo-Greeks reached the Ganges River and besieged Pataliputra, the former capital of the Maurya as described by Megasthenes nearly a century and a half before, now in the hands of the Shunga dynasty. One of the most important Indian sources on this period is known as the Yuga Purana, an astrology text written in Sanskrit that, despite being delivered in a prophetic manner, provides a summary of historical events. In it, we get the following passage about the invasion of the Indo-Greeks. Then, having approached Saketa together with the Pankalas and Mathuras, the Avanas, valiant in battle, will reach Kusumajava. Then, once Pushpapura has been reached and its celebrated mud walls cast down, all the realms will be in disorder, there is no doubt. Kusumajava and Pushpapura are alternate names for Pataliputra, which lines up with Strabo's claim about passing the Punjab and reaching the Gangetic Plain. And as they follow the lower Ganges on their way, 
The Greeks also sacked the important cities of Mathura, Saketa, and Bengala in Uttar Pradesh. Attempting to date the siege of Pataliputra and the invasions is extremely difficult, as there is a wide range of possible answers. A reference to this invasion may be found in the work of Patanjali, one of the great Indian grammarians of antiquity who appears to have been contemporaneous to these events. In the Mahabhashya, a text supposedly written around 150 BC, Patanjali speaks of the Avanas besieging Saketa and Madhyamika in the modern state of Rajasthan. The 5th century playwright Kalidasa composed a drama based on the life of Pushyamitra Shunga, and within it he mentions a battle fought between the cavalry of the Avanas and Pushyamitra's grandson, Vashumitra, over a wayward horse on the banks of the Indus. The Yuga Purana also states that the Greeks were forced to abandon their siege of Pataliputra, for some sort of war had broken out back in their homeland. Perhaps this is a reference to the invasion of Eucratides, or even the civil wars and disorder that plagued Bactria following his death. These various accounts need not be confined to a single event, and the Indo-Greeks could have led more than one raid into the Indian heartland, be it under Menander or other kings. For all intents and purposes, the reign of Menander is viewed as the apogee of the Indo-Greek kingdoms, and is where we will pause our narrative for the time being. As we did in Central Asia, let us go over the major settlements of northwestern India during the Indo-Greek period. In contrast to Bactria, there is no equivalent to an Ai-Kanum in terms of a preserved city, and many sites have remained occupied, with the Hellenistic level being buried under thousands of years of accumulated debris. Positively identifying these layers or other city foundations as being Greek in origin with the limited sources we have is a severe challenge but in recent years there has been extensive archaeological work done in the region, and we can optimistically look forward to new developments following the release of this series. Takshila, known as Takshashila in Sanskrit, was one of the most important cities in ancient India, located near the riverbank of the upper Indus River in the Punjab. It was the first major settlement in India encountered by Alexander, ruled over at the time by the king Takshilis and the Greeks were impressed by its size and organization. With the expansion of the Mauryan Empire, Ashoka the Great was sent there as a young princeling to oversee it as a provincial capital, and it was generally thought of as an intellectual and cultural center by both Greeks and Indians alike. Confusingly, Takshila seems to have moved around a bit, or given birth to sister cities throughout the millennia, though is generally contained within the same approximate area. The original site, as seen by Alexander, was likely situated on the Bahir Mound, but by the 2nd century another location was established to the north, just across the riverbank at Sirkap. Given Takshila's strategic importance, it was almost certainly done on the order of the Indo-Greek kings to act as their new administrative capital of Gandhara. According to a biography of a Greek named Apollonius of Tyana, who was said to have traveled in India during the 1st century AD, Takshila is described as large as Assyrian Nineveh, and Hellenistic in its design. It possessed extensive fortifications, streets organized akin to Athens, bungalow-styled houses with only a single floor and basement, baths, gardens, and temples. The author claims that a shrine still displayed bronze tablets listing the deeds of Alexander the Great and King Porus alike, in addition to paintings that were similar in style to Greek frescoes. While this rather sensationalized account needs to be treated with caution, archaeological evidence also appears to confirm a strong Greek presence among its cosmopolitan population, as the excavations of Sir John Marshall during the early 20th century have provided a wealth of information about the site's organization and layout. Sir Cap was constructed on the Hippodamian grid, in contrast to the original site's less rigidly structured streets. Both Corinthian and Ionian columns can be found as are Hellenic-inspired temples. Both Takshila and Sirkap were occupied at the same time, and served important roles in the Indo-Greek administration. But perhaps like Babylon and Seleucia on the Tigris, Takshila was more conservatively Indian than its Greek sister city, 
Still, there are clearly local Gandharan and broader Indian influences on the makeup of Sir Cap, as evidenced by the presence of several Buddhist stupas which, in turn, bore artistic designs inspired by Western motifs. An inscription from modern Vidisha confirms that at least one Indo-Greek king ruled from Takshila, namely Antiochidas I, but their control over the site probably went back to Agathocles. During Indo-Greek rule, a mint was established at Sirkap, as evidenced by the discovery of over 12,000 coins in excavations of the site. Monograms denoting the use of the Takshila mint have been found on a number of Indo-Greek rulers, including the aforementioned Antiochidas and another named Lysias. This city would later serve as a major political center long after Indo-Greek rule, during the time of the Indo-Scythians, Indo-Parthians, and the Kushans. A city that gets much attention from the Indian sources is Sagala, or Sakala, situated near the modern Sialkot in the Punjab. According to the Melinda Panya, this was the capital of Menander, and we get the following passage, quote, There is in the country of the Onakas a great center of trade, a city that is called Sagala, situated in a delightful country, well-watered and hilly, abounding in parks and gardens and groves and lakes and tanks, a paradise of rivers and mountains and woods. Wise architects have laid it out, brave is its defense, with many and various strong towers and ramparts, with superb gates and entrance archways, and with the royal citadel in its midst, white-walled and deeply moated. Well laid out are its streets, squares, crossroads, and marketplaces. End quote. There is no direct mention of Sagala by the Greco-Roman sources, though we get a confusing reference by Ptolemy the geographer of a similarly located city named Euthymedia, which has sparked a flurry of debate as to whether this should be amended to Euthydemia after the Greco-Bactrian ruler. Among the plains of Peshawar in Pakistan and close to the junction of the Kabul and Swat rivers, one can find a number of large mounds that jut out from the land near the area of Charsada. Excavations from this site have revealed a large Hippodamian grid, and it has been identified as the Indo-Greek city of Pukealotis. Frequently mentioned by multiple authors, it must have been a place of considerable importance. It was possibly named after the Indo-Greek king Pukolaos, with coin finds demonstrating his existence, or perhaps other Macedonian officials in Alexander's army sharing the same title. During the Kushan period, the city was moved again, and was known by the Indians as Pushkalavati. Though whether Pushkalavati is an Indianized rendition of Pukalautis, or the other way around, it remains uncertain. The latter might be more accurate, as the city seems to have been occupied at multiple stages, probably serving as a regional capital of Gandhara for the Persians, and re-established under the Indo-Greeks. According to the Greeks and Romans, Alexander is said to have founded an Alexandria within or near the vicinity of the Indian Caucasus a term confusingly used to describe the Hindu Kush mountain range. Archaeologists have yet to firmly locate this city, but evidence for its existence is supported by polytexts that repeatedly refer to an Alessandra, a name that bears an obviously strong resemblance to Alexandria, and it is explicitly described as a Yona city. Many believe that Alessandra and Alexandria in the Caucasus are one and the same, Yet some argue that this Alexandria should be identified with the Afghan city of Bagram, situated about 80 miles north of Kabul. Bagram's reputation is due more to its role as a summer capital of the later Kushan Empire, also known as Kapisa, and was the site that saw the discovery of a large treasure hoard appropriately named the Bagram Hoard. Whether it is valid to consider Bagram and Alexandria in the Caucasus to be a single location or two, there is evidence of a Hellenistic occupation throughout the Greco-Bactrian and Indo-Greek periods. The 19th century explorer Charles Masson managed to find thousands of Greek coins while digging in the city's ruins. Along the Argandab River in southern Afghanistan, only a few hundred miles from the border of Pakistan, lies the city of Kandahar. Adjacent to the modern urban sprawl is a large elevated citadel known as Shar-e-Kuna, or Old Kandahar, which served as its historical center for thousands of years prior to its destruction in the late 18th century. It has generally been agreed upon, though not without reservations, that Kandahar served as a major city during the Hellenistic period and probably bore the name Alexandria in Arachosia. 
perhaps the most frequently cited connection between today's settlement and that of its old is its current name. Kandahar is derived from the Iranian Iskandar, which in turn is derived from Alexander. This seems cut and dry, but just because the name is a variation of Alexander doesn't necessarily mean that it was derived from Alexander the Great himself. Few literary accounts speak of Alexander's city founding in Aracosia, but there are several writings that hint at Alexandria's existence. Isidore of Carax mentions the city of Alexandropolis, and describes it as being adjacent to the Aracotus River, which matches that of current Kandahar. Strabo and Pliny the Elder talk of a settlement sharing a similar topography, though the name they give is Arakotoi, probably the city's original Iranian name. Given its strategic location and elevated position, it is likely that the Macedonians renamed a previously occupied site that dated to the Persian period or earlier. All sources recognize its commercial and political importance, as Isidore explicitly calls it the metropolis of the region and Greek in identity. A historian of Han China named Ban Gu speaks of a city known as Wu Yi Shanli, the terminus point for merchants traveling between South and Central Asia. Ban Gu also found the currency of the city to be quite unusual, since they depicted the king's face, which would fall under the Hellenistic model of coin designs. Given this information, we may be able to confirm that the historian is speaking of Kandahar, and that Wu Yi Shanli is a transliteration for Alexandria. Despite the centuries of habitation making it difficult to penetrate the layer of Greek occupation, Kandahar's importance during the Hellenistic period is testified by the archaeological and epigraphical remains that have been uncovered. Emperor Ashoka of the Moria saw fit to have his edicts inscribed upon rocks and pillars within the outskirts of the city during the mid-3rd century BC, notably in Greek. Other Greek inscriptions have made their way out of the site, the most important of these being a funerary epigram of a man named Sophitos, which will be discussed later, and another important inscription was dedicated by a man known only as the son of Aristonax, who had placed it out of thanks for being rescued from the predation of a wild animal. Quote, this statue of the wild beast, I, the son of Aristonax, having been rescued by from its attacks, set up in this sacred glen among my fellow countrymen. In antiquity, India was considered one of the most populous and wealthy lands in the world. Herodotus claims that under the Persians, Indian vassals contributed about 530 talents worth of treasure to the great king in the 5th century, much of it in alluvial gold dust collected from the riverbanks. Gemstones, namely rubies, pearls, agate, and others, were considered one of its most valuable exports, and Pliny the Elder called India the great producer of the most costly gems. Gandhara was keenly situated as a major nexus point for traders moving between Central and South Asia, perhaps traveling on imperial highways that had been previously established by the Maurya. It also may be assumed that the Indo-Greeks were able to capitalize on the growing trade between China and the West. In his account of Central Asia, Zhang Chen was surprised at the amount of Chinese goods that were available for purchase in the markets of Bactra, despite the minimal amount of contact between China and the rest of Central Asia. The Bactrian merchants explained to him that they picked up these products from India, presumably referring to the cities of the Indo-Greek kingdoms. The author of the Melinda Panya fawned over the prosperity of Menander's kingdom, reciting a checklist of goods available in Sagala. Products such as jewels, perfumes, textiles like muslin, all and more were available for eager buyers. Quote, so full is the city of money, and of gold and silverware, of copper and stoneware, that it is a very mine of dazzling treasures. In wealth it rivals Utarakuru, and in glory it is as Alakamanda, the city of the gods." End quote. With their wealth, the Indo-Greeks carried on the tradition of minting spectacular coins, and scholars have come to depend on them far more for the reconstructions of chronology when compared to those in Bactria. Portraits of the Indo-Greek kings appear much as they did in Central Asia all wearing the diadem and often shown equipped in Hellenistic military garb. While only one royal lady has been discovered on the coinage of Bactria, we have at least three that appear in the Indo-Greek record, and two of them struck their own coins, 
though they both appear to have ruled jointly with either their husbands or sons. In the first century BC, Amentus I ordered the striking of the largest silver coins of the ancient world, double the size and weight of the Attic Standard, and measuring around 65 millimeters, 2.55 inches in diameter. These coins could be quite the travelers. Coins minted by Menander I have been found as far west as Hampshire County in Britain, presumably passing through the hands of traders before being brought by Roman officials. Olympic deities like Heracles, Zeus, Apollo, and Dionysus all grace the reverse side of these strikes, and so we can still distinctly see an emphasis on Hellenic identity being communicated through their coinage. Unlike their Bactrian counterparts, however, these coins adhered much more to local custom, to an extent that was unmatched by any of the successor kingdoms in the West. From the perspective of numismatists, the Hindu Kush may be viewed as a sort of cultural monetary divide. Coins minted by those living north of the range, such as the Greco-Bactrians, would be based on the Attic standard of 4.20 grams per drachm, while those ruling in the south relied more on lighter Indian standards of 2.45 grams. Neither the Ptolemies nor the Seleucids ever put local languages like Egyptian or Aramaic on their currency, but with the Indo-Greek specimens we often find bilingual legends. These primarily are in Karashthi, a type of script popular in the Gandharan region, but they could also be written in Brahmi, used for classical Sanskrit, the common version Prakrit, and Pali. Generally speaking, these legends are usually a close match, as the Greek title of king, Basileos, is paired with the Karashthi Maharajasa, Great King, or the Brahmi Rajane. Much like how the Rosetta Stone aided in the decipherment of Egyptian hieroglyphic, these bilingual coins were invaluable for 19th century scholars looking to decipher early Brahmi, which had gone extinct by the 5th century AD. The Norwegian Indologist Christian Lassen used the coins of Agathocles to work backwards, comparing the Greek legend Basileus Agathocleus of King Agathocles to the Brahmi Rajane Agathoculiesa. While Hellenistic coin types are universally circular in shape, the Indo-Greeks minted several variations that were square, which had been the norm in India from the Persian and Mauryan period onwards. These tended to be smaller denominations in bronze, intended for local use, but there were also silver species sharing this format as well. Alongside the standard Hellenistic imagery, many Indian motifs and designs make their appearance on them as well. The humped cattle breed known as zebus, lions, the eight-spoked wheel, and elephants. More striking is the explicit appearance of Hindu gods. The two confirmed deities are Vasudeva, an aspect of Krishna, and Samkarshana Balarama, the elder brother of Krishna. In some instances, we see a blend of iconography that combined aspects of both the Hindu and Olympic pantheon. For instance, Antiochidas I's coins show Zeus Nikephoros, bringer of victory, riding upon the back of an elephant, a feature that could be viewed as syncretism between Zeus and Indra. It is important that we assess the Indian perspective of the Greeks. For much of the Hellenistic period, the term used by the Indians to describe the Hellenes was Yona or Yavana. This was derived from the Persian word Yona, which itself was adapted from Ionian, the Greeks living in Asia Minor. Eventually this became a general catch-all name for any peoples west of India, including the Saka, Parthians, and the Romans who would eventually establish contact through the maritime trading networks of the Red Sea and Western Indian Ocean. Context usually indicates which group is being referred to, though it sometimes creates problems of identification, such as during the end of the Indo-Greek period and the arrival of the Saka and Kushan. Brahmin texts like the Mahabharata categorize Greeks as belonging to the same general group as barbarians, viewing them as Melechas, living outside of the caste, and all the negative baggage that comes with the term. Later writings were more flexible on the matter, as the usefulness of the Greeks as political and military allies was quite apparent, but the inherent mistrust still remained. The nature of caste in ancient India remains controversial, 
and there are many sound arguments demonstrating the lack of rigidity in such categories. It was, however, something that Greek observers like Megasthenes reported on, to varying degrees of accuracy. This notion of caste hierarchy may cause us to read certain events in Greco-Indian history in a different light. As I briefly mentioned earlier, included in the terms of the Treaty of the Indus between Seleucus I and Chandragupta Maurya is a reference to some sort of marriage arrangement. Traditionally, this is thought to have been an exchange of a Seleucid princess to Chandragupta, to solidify their agreement, which is not too out of the norm for royal politicking at the time. The term used to denote the marriage is quite vague, however, and some scholars suggest that rather than referring to the handing over of one of Seleucus's daughters, the marriage alliance was a renegotiation of marriage rights between the Greek colonists in Arachosia and Indian women. As foreigners and Miletchas, Greeks would be outside of the caste system, barred from intermarrying with the local communities. This would be a problem given the limited number of women that took part in the initial waves of Hellenistic settlement of the East. Yet how much weight should we place in this idea, and could the number of Greeks living there have been substantial enough to warrant this negotiating point? While direct Greek control over Arachosia was brief, there are hints of a strong degree of continuity for the Hellenic colonists living in the area. In 259-258, Ashoka carved a royal edict upon the rock face just outside of Kandahar, celebrating the tenth year since his coronation and espousing his Buddhist beliefs. Rather than being written in Sanskrit or Prakrit, Ashoka ordered that it be copied into two versions, one in Aramaic, a lingua franca of the Iranian plateau, and one in Greek. Another inscription was set up later, this time just in Greek. Whoever translated the emperor's edicts was clearly educated and held a strong grasp of the Greek language, and the fact that it was written in Greek at all suggests that the Hellenic population living in Kandahar was large enough or held enough political power to warrant it. How did the Indians react to the influx of Greeks into the subcontinent? There is plenty of evidence to suggest that there was hostility towards their arrival. Alexander's invasion routinely saw massacres and fierce resistance by the locals, and the later campaigns of the Bactrians likely did not engender themselves either. The Matsya Purana, composed under the patronage of the Shungas, reflects this anti-Greek sentiment by describing the events of the invasion of the Yavanas. Quote, there will be Yavanas here by reason of religious feeling or ambition or plunder, massacring women and children and killing one another. Kings will enjoy the earth at the end of the Kali Age. They will be destitute of righteousness affection, and wealth. Mingled with them will be Arya and Milecha folk everywhere. They prevail in turn, the population will perish. End quote. Undoubtedly, the conquests were violent, and competition between the various Indo-Greek rulers would have resulted in further turmoil. If we are inclined to accept the idea that the Indo-Greeks were often generous patrons of Buddhism, then perhaps these feelings were magnified as part of the Brahmins' resentment of the support that competing doctrines could receive. The Shungas were the first explicitly Brahmanical dynasties since before the time of the Maurya, whose rulers could be associated with Jainism or Buddhism. In contrast to the hostility of the Matsya Purana, the Pali Buddhist text, the Melinda Panya, more on this work later, holds a generally positive outlook on the Indo-Greeks, whom they call the Yonakas. Though revered more for his connection to Buddhism, Menander is viewed as a just and fair king, his capital of Sagala well-organized and wealthy. As we have discussed in previous episodes, excavations in Central Asia have provided us with a wealth of information to suggest the establishment of a flourishing Greek culture in Bactria. Yet there is little evidence for the Indo-Greeks, who, despite occupying Pakistan and northwest India for centuries, have left barely any evidence of their existence outside of their coinage. Greco-Roman writers championed Demetrius and Menander as conquerors rivaling Alexander, but remain quiet with regards to the finer details of the Indo-Greek kingdoms. Indian authors are only a little more talkative, but do not speak in terms of Greek culture or civilization making its way into South Asia. No ruins of an Indo-Greek city equivalent to Ikanum, perhaps other than Takshila, have been found and up till relatively recently, there were no texts or inscriptions within Bactria and India indicating that Greek intellectual culture persisted in any significant degree. The apparently ephemeral nature of Indo-Greek rule led Narayan to assert that, quote, the Greeks came, the Greeks saw, but India conquered. 
that the supposed Hellenizers have been overcome by the pull of India's rich cultural history. But the last few decades have proven to be quite fruitful, and work by researchers and archaeologists alike have added a great deal of complexity to the discussion. This is a theme that will carry over for the rest of our series, but let us look at the evidence that we have regarding the identity of the Indo-Greeks. There are two substantial inscriptions dating to the Indo-Greek period, invaluable case studies regarding the perception of self-identity within Hellenistic India. The first is known as the Sophitos Stile, a limestone block measuring about 24 by 24 inches, 62 by 62 centimeters, and dated approximately to the 2nd century BC. Scholars only learned about the existence of this tablet in the early 2000s, since it belongs in the hands of a private collector. Ethical qualms aside, this specimen was found in Kandahar, one of the few pieces of evidence of a Hellenistic culture in Arachosia. Inscribed upon the block are 22 lines of Greek, a funerary epigram for a man named Sophitos, or Sophites, son of Naratos. Sophitos tells us of his history, discussing how he managed to restore the family fortune by becoming a merchant after leaving his home in Alexandria and Arachosia. Quote, the irresistible force of the trio of fates destroyed the house of my forefathers, which had flourished greatly for many years. But I, Sophitos, son of Naratos, pitiably bereft when quite small of my ancestral livelihood, after I had acquired the virtue of the archer and the muses, mixed with noble prudence, then consider how I might raise up my family house. Obtaining interest-bearing money from another source, I left home, keen not to return before I possessed wealth the supreme good. Thus, by traveling to many cities for commerce, I acquired ample riches without reproach. Becoming celebrated, I returned to my homeland after countless years and showed myself, bringing pleasure to well-wishers." Neither Sophitos nor Neratos are Greek names. They are likely Greek transliterations of Suputi and Narada, names of Indian origin in their Prakrit form that would have been reasonably commonplace during this time. As I mentioned earlier, a king Sophites of the Punjab was received by Alexander and made a satrap, so there is some corroborative evidence to support an Indian ancestry. However, Sophitos does not share any other information to indicate his ethnic identity or background, so we aren't able to exactly read the context of his Greekness. Yet whomever is the author of this epigram, either Sophitos or perhaps one of his children, they held a great command of the Greek language and were well versed in Greek literature. Hints of Sophitos' education are evident when he refers to his acquisition of the virtue, arete, of Apollo and the Muses. The lines are directly evocative of Homeric verse and archaic technical language, including at one point a parallel of the opening passage of the Odyssey. His epigram is also an acrostic a term referring to a poem or prose where the first letter of each line forms another line. In this case, the acrostic text reads vertically, Through Sophitos, the son of Naratos. Evidently, Sophitos' learnedness was something he considered to be a point of pride and wanted passerby to recognize from reading his grave marker. It certainly indicates that Alexandrian Arachosia was a multicultural city that possessed a strong Greek intellectual tradition. Was Sophitos eager to emphasize his Greekness as part of being some sort of cultural or intellectual elite of the area? His rags-to-riches story lent itself well to the idea of a nouveau riche merchant keen on displaying his personal achievements, but we can't say that Sophitos was explicitly trying to appear Greek, since we don't know enough about the context of Sophitos' background to draw any conclusions about his intent. The second important inscription is in modern Vidisha in the state of Madhya Pradesh, formerly the ancient site of Besnagar. There stands a sandstone pillar, measuring a little over 7 meters in height. Others were probably adjacent to it as well, but this specimen remains the only survivor. Known as the Heliodorus Pillar, named after its dedicant, it was set up in approximately 110 BC. The text reads as follows, quote, This Garuda Pillar of Vashudeva, the god of gods, was constructed here by Heliodora, the Bhagavata, son of Dia of Takshashila, the Greek ambassador who came from the great king Amtalikita to King Kashiputra Bhagavadra, the savior prospering in his fourteenth regnal year. 
These three steps to immortality, when correctly followed, lead to heaven, control, generosity, and attention. End quote. There are many elements here to dissect, but let us first talk about its context. Besnagar was an important trading center during the late 2nd century BC, home to King Kashiputra, perhaps a vassal of the Shunga Empire, ruling from Takshila, Antiochidas I, who otherwise is only attested to in numismatics, sent out his ambassador Heliodorus, also a native of Takshila, to visit Kashiputra and establish some sort of relations or a possible alliance. There is little ambiguity when compared to the origins of Sophitos. Heliodorus and his father Dion's names are very much Greek, and he explicitly calls himself Yonadutena, Greek ambassador. Yet unlike Sophitos' use of the Greek language, Heliodorus wrote his inscription in Prakrit, the common tongue of India, using Brahmi letters. Even more curious are his references to Vedic religion. The term Bhagavata specifically denotes a worshipper of the god Vishnu, or better understood as the incarnation Krishna Vasudeva, who is also mentioned as the recipient of Heliodorus's honors. Vasudeva is also one of the only identifiable Indian deities to be found on Indo-Greek coins, namely those issued by Agathocles around 180 BC. His cult was prominent in the region, and the specific terminology employed by Heliodorus implies a high degree of familiarity. At the very least, the ambassador was looking to impress the local Indian community with his knowledge and patronization of Hindu deities. On the other end, we might be looking at the writings of an explicitly Greek devotee or convert to the cult of Vasudeva, who probably had our local branch in Takshila. Additionally, the portion referring to the Three Steps of Immortality is believed to be a recitation of a verse from the famous Indian epic, the Mahabharata, further evidence suggesting Heliodorus's deep knowledge of Indian religion and mythology. Like in Ptolemaic Egypt and Seleucid Mesopotamia, there is also strong evidence for the use of double names, whereby a single individual can have two names of distinct cultural origin, one of which being for personal use, likely the culture they most identify with, and the other for legal or administrative purposes. We have seen examples of local Babylonians or Egyptians adopting Greek names, but in the case of both Sophitos and Heliodorus, we only get a single name that is extrapolated by modern scholars. However, inscriptions discovered in Gandhara have shown the use of both an Indian and a Greek name. The first is a seal with the name Denukrata Sagarakshida. Denukrata is the Indianized rendition of Dinocrates, and Sagarakshida is a more traditionally Indian name, with the Karashthi inscription telling us the name of Imdravarma, who also had the Greek name of Alexandros. It is impossible to tell the ethnic or cultural background of these two individuals, but they do indicate that the double name convention was being practiced to some extent or another. Returning to Indo-Greek coinage, it speaks volumes as to how much they followed Indian custom, the use of local languages and alphabets, the depiction of Hindu and Buddhist religious iconography, and the use of Indian coin standards and shapes. For most of the Hellenistic world, Coin money was almost always a typically Greek medium and communicated as such. Neighboring Bactria adhered to this tradition, but the Indo-Greeks quickly deviated from the practice following their establishment in the Punjab. Yet the evidence does suggest that these Hellenistic kings ruled in a similar manner to their contemporaries, that Greek intellectual culture was still practiced, and the Olympic pantheon was venerated in the tradition of their ancestors. One notable example is Menander's use of the goddess Athena Alcademos on his coinage. The epithet Alcademos means defender of the people, an incarnation that is specifically tied to Macedonia. To conclude our discussion, we must recognize that the Indo-Greeks had acclimated to their new cultural environment and adopted several elements to suit their own purposes to a degree that differed from the contemporary Hellenistic kingdoms. Some may take this as evidence of their wholesale Indianization, which is certainly strengthened by the evidence, or perhaps the lack thereof. It is important to note, however, that the Seleucids and Ptolemies were also keen to weave themselves in the fabric of both the Near East and Egypt respectively, that they took on the roles as arbiters or patrons in the local religious customs of the populations that they ruled over. If all we had were the Egyptian temples that portrayed the Ptolemies in the same mold as the traditional pharaohs, or Babylonian tablets showing the involvement of the Seleucid kings in Babylonian ceremonies, would we not face the same dilemma as we do with the Indo-Greeks? 
yet we do not dispute the Hellenic origins and court culture of those dynasties. But this may precisely demonstrate the dynamic and sometimes problematic nature of Hellenization, Indianization, or any other comparable terms. We can clearly see, though, that the world of the Indo-Greeks was complex, but we do not have the insight remotely comparable to Hellenistic Egypt, or Syria, or Mesopotamia to make any assumptions outside of rough guesswork. What needs to be done is not just to rely on scrutinizing everything with a Greek lens, but to view from a variety of perspectives to make our best attempt at reconstructing one of the most fascinating unknowns in world history.